For those people who don't know, um, Jody Rich and I look at all the sermons. We've been doing that for some time every week. So Rich, Jody looked at this, what I delivered, looked at last week. It's when Nita spoke, when Drew speak. That's what we've been doing. So that what you're getting is not sort of thoughts that I've done, gone away and studied. It's Jody's book, it's not my book. Um, me going away, praying about it, and then actually, hopefully, you're getting something that isn't just one person's thoughts on it, you're getting some input from other people as well. And the great thing about this, this series that we're doing um, is that you've got time to look ahead, you've got a bit of time to reflect, and so last week we had Esther chapter 1, as in Esther part 1, this week we've got Esther part 2. So if you were here last week, great news because you heard the story, you've got an idea about it. Hopefully some of you may have gone away. I know at least one or two of you have gone away um, and have looked into this story a little bit more. Um, right next to Rob here are six Bibles. Um, sometimes it's great just to listen and hear the person speaking. Sometimes it's good to have the Bible in front of you so that you can just follow and check that I'm A, not making it up, or B, there might be something that God says to you specifically about one of these bits. So if you'd like a Bible, we've got six over here. Esther is in the Old Testament, um, just sort of after the middle of the Old Testament. So please don't feel shy if you do want one either. Let's do it now. So anyone want one? Just so that you can follow it or just flicker if I get boring, you've got something. Um, don't feel at all embarrassed about it. We didn't tell you to bring them. That's absolutely fine. Um, so, last week we looked at Esther. We looked at it as part of our series on faith in action. Um, and what I want to encourage you to do is to think about the story and to also think about how it applies to you. So that's what we're going to be trying to do today. We're going to do a little bit on the story and then we're going to be doing some work on how it might apply to you looking through about six specific points. So in a nutshell, I was kind of thinking, do I do this as question and answer? But I don't want to embarrass anyone. But I, I think you're going to be good at this. You'd do it as question and answer. I just know you would. Okay, so um, who was the king of Persia at the time of Esther? Xerxes. How many provinces did he rule? 127. Um, what did he have that was a massive event? A banquet. How long did it last for? Six months, ages. How long at the end did he invite everybody from the city from? For one week. What was the city called? Susa. Um, this is really good. What was his wife called? Vashti. Um, what happened that made Vashti get banished? She refused to come into the big party at the end. Absolutely. So they were banished. Okay. What did Xerxes do next for a few years? Went to war. Excellent. Um, when he came back, what happened? What did he do to try and get a wife? called the most, sent people looking for the most beautiful women in the area. We're getting a bit scared now, aren't we? He sent, this is brilliant. This is, I love the 127 territories. It just shows how different people's minds work. Okay, so he sent people out to try and find the most beautiful people in the world. Excellent. What did those women have to do? 
get facelifts, exactly right, get there, get, yeah, all those kind of things, tucks, yeah, no, I'm not going there, but yeah, all those kind of things, what, how long for? A year, they had to get ready for a year, and then what did they probably have to do, let's be honest, I know it's the Bible, go into the king for a night, okay, that's what it says, okay, um, at that point, who was chosen, easy one, everyone, Esther was chosen, because she's a star, because the word Esther, same root word as, if you know Spanish, estrella, which means star. So Esther's the star of the show. Okay, um, where are her mum and dad? Dead. Okay, who does she live with for years? Uncle, name? Mordecai. She lives with Uncle Mordecai. Okay, what does Mordecai say to her not to tell the king or anybody at all? That she's Jewish. Excellent. So she doesn't. Um, who hates Mordecai and the Jews? Haman. What's Haman's role? He's prime minister. What does he try and make the king of Persia do? Kill all the Jews. How does he do it? By a decree. Excellent. By a decree. Okay, the decree is on a certain day. Which day? The really close, there's a 12th in it, you can have 12th, excellent, 13th of the 12th, I think it's called Adar the month, um, the 13th of the 12th which is Adar, okay the decree goes out that everyone's killed, what does Mordecai do, it's a bit open, yeah puts ashes and stuff all over him, where does he sit, by the city gates, why hasn't he gone in and told the king, can't, he's not allowed to, he'll get killed, what does he tell Esther to do? Go and tell the king. Why doesn't she just go in? She's not allowed to. Why doesn't she go in? She's not allowed to. Go on, Heather. Yeah, he's got this scepter in, you know, within the veil. It's not just made up all this stuff. In the Middle East at this time, you can't just walk in and see a king. You can't just walk into the Holy of Holies. There's a veil. You've got to be invited. Even the priests in the Bible could only go in once a year. You can't just walk in and see the king of all the known world. You have to be invited. Does she go anyway? Does she get killed? No, okay. What does she then do rather than just come bluntly out with it someone's trying to kill? She fasts. She invites the king and the prime minister to a feast. Excellent. How many feasts? Two. What does she say at the second one? In a nutshell. Yeah, she exposes Haman, okay? What has Haman been building? A gallows. Was it really a gallows? A big spike. It was probably a spike because the real world is impaled here. He was building a massive spike. How big was the spike? Just out of interest. 75 feet. Okay. That's not a sport. Yeah. Yeah. She's cheating. But I didn't say it last week. I just thought, you know, just think, some people have really read this story. Some people know this. 75 feet spike. Um, does he get Mordecai on the spike? Who goes on the spike? Haman. Okay. Um, what does he do just before he goes on the spike to try and save himself? He begs the queen, he tries to go, no, 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 don't let this happen. Xerxes come in, we know Xerxes is big. Okay, so on the spot, what does Esther and the king and Mordecai then do? Yeah, get away out, another decree. 
okay? And the decree says the day before you can arm yourselves, you can be ready, etc., etc. So who wins, the people who are trying to kill the Jews or the Jews? The Jews. Who becomes Haman's successor as prime minister? Mordecai. Okay. And how do the Jewish people remember this moving forward? Purim. Now, somebody told me to say this. I will. Why is it called Purim? Because it's a joke. No, 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 no. No, I can do if you want, but no. It's to do with drawing lots. Okay. So I said last week, pure are lots. Haman cast lots to decide which day of the week he'd annihilate all the Jews. Okay, so the lots are called pure. Pure im is simply the plural of lots. Okay, um, fora is if you're having one group of people. Forum is a group of people meeting together. So, not quite. The opposite. Yeah, okay. Yeah, forum, fora. So, it doesn't work. Um, pure im, pure is the plural. That's all we know. Yeah, that's the key thing. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so there's a remembrance. Do the Jews celebrate today? Anyone remember anything they do? They retell the story, they get drunk. They give gifts to two families, exactly. Okay, excellent. So this feast goes on today. Okay, that's the story. Um, that's good, well done, well done. Excellent. Um, so last week, we also looked at how this story of Esther fits in with the model of faith that we were talking about in Hebrews chapter... We're going to carry this on if we're not careful, aren't we? <laughs> chapter 11. Okay. And we said that this is the pattern. Faith is being sure of what we... We're going to just like sing this. <laughs> faith is being sure of what we hope for, even though we don't see the end result. Okay, that's what faith is. Think about it now. Think about Ukraine. Think about your own lives. Think about what Drew's saying this morning. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, even though we don't see the end result. We are commended for our faith because it pleases God. We're commended for faith because it pleases God. Often that's what we do, but it's the faith that pleases God, even if it's not seen visually. Faith is about realising we are strangers and foreigners on earth and that we have a heavenly home where we are going. That is what faith is. It's about understanding the past, how the world was made. It's about looking to the future and it's about living in the present. Faith is also about what people do as a result of their belief. It's not possible to have faith without deeds, says James in the Bible. So whilst faith is about something that you and God have, there'll be certain secret things that you and God talk about that you don't necessarily share. Faith needs to be seen in action. If we are people of faith, if we believe in the living God, we do stuff. And as we've said before, we do stuff that he's prepared in advance for us. We're masterpieces. We've got good works that he's got ready for us. Faith doesn't guarantee success on earth. Some people do succeed on earth, not everyone does, but it doesn't matter because as we've seen in this Old Testament and in the Esther story, faith is about having the certainty that God's prepared a home for us. So when we were looking at it last week, we saw Esther and Mordecai, they were sure of what they hoped for, they believed God could save the entire Jewish race. 
and they genuinely believed it, and they didn't care if they died trying to get that to happen. Both of them were rewarded, they were commended. One becomes queen, one becomes prime minister, one's got a book of the Bible named after them. The story's embedded in Jewish culture. They are remembered because of their faith. Both of them are literally strangers. They are foreigners, they do not belong in Susa. They're taken, well, they're not taken there. Their predecessors are taken there. They live in a culture that is not their own but they know that they have a people, they know that they've got a faith, and they know that they've got a purpose in God, even if they're in somewhere that is completely alien and weird to what they've been brought up to understand. So if faith helps us a bit about the past, the present, the future, Esther and Mordecai are really good examples because they are living well in the present, they are reflecting on the past, they know about their past, they know they're Jewish, and they're also looking to a better future. They create the future. One of the quotes I've lived with a little bit is, the best way to predict the future is to create it, or to invent it, or to make it. And absolutely right, we are in times at the moment where there are opportunities to make a different future. The things that have seemed permanent and solid and stable, the decrees of people like Xerxes, the kings, the rulers, the rules, the nations, things are changing and we can be part of, the, of this. And if faith is about action as a result of belief, Mordecai and Esther both do it. They both decide, right, we are going to, even if our lives depend on it, even if we lose our lives, we are going to take steps, actions, because of what we believe. And so faith is about saying, if I die, I die. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. I will know that God is being acted upon. I will do what I believe God wants me to do. So this is what we're going to have a little look at this week. We're going to look at some new stuff. First of all, we're going to look at Esther as a woman, a woman of beauty, of power, a woman of action, humility, and a star. We're then going to look at Mordecai. Mordecai is a man of God. He's a man of humility. He's got boldness, and he's a good mentor. Then we're going to look at God's timing. We're going to spend a little bit of time on God and his timing. We're going to look at living in a complex pagan world, and we're going to think about remembering, remembering as a biblical concept. Okay, so first of all, we're going to think about Esther. She's a woman, she's a Jewish orphan girl in a massive pagan empire, and yet she becomes the queen who can turn around decrees of the king. It is a massive city, Susa. It's quite an incredible city. Her uncle looks after her, but she's probably in her late teens. We don't know. She's probably somewhere between 13 and 19 when this order comes round. And we know she had a lovely figure. We also know that she was beautiful. We don't know anything else about her. We don't know how she lived. We know that she was looked after by Mordecai. We know that he was a strict Jew. So we imagine she's been brought up with lots of Jewish customs and ways and beliefs. We don't know if she chooses to go to the king, but we know that she's taken. Taken suggests it's against her will. 
She may well have been forced to go. She may have felt she had no choice because she's dragged there. Um, however she got there, she spends a year being made to look even more beautiful in a harem before she spends a night with this pagan king. Now, the lesson's not going to be you've got to spend a year, women, making yourselves look beautiful. Don't worry about it. But what we do know is that in that time she was there, in the harem, she found favour with the leader of the harem and all the people and then with the king. So there is something about her, about the way she is, that isn't just about the physical, that actually is attractive to other people. And when she becomes queen, she remains really close to her roots. She's listening to her uncle, even when she's going to lose her life. And we know that Mordecai is really straight with her. We know she's bold. She'll go in and she speaks to the king, even when she knows it puts her and her family at risk. And we know that she is a woman trusting God to do this. So, women... Now, more than ever, this is your time. There are women in the Bible, like Esther, who show that they dramatically step in and make a difference. But now, in our culture in this world, women, young women, girls, have got more opportunities than they've ever had. They still haven't got equality in many, many areas. But you as women have an opportunity to speak out in a way that in many other cultures and many other civilizations, you haven't. Let's do everything possible to encourage you as women, to encourage our daughters, our mums, our wives, our partners. Let's encourage our women to speak out for God. Mordecai is a man of God. So in one sense, there's more of Mordecai in this story than there is about Esther. Mordecai is more at the, at the heart of this. Mordecai is motivating. Mordecai takes on Esther as his own child, it says, after her parents die. We don't know how long it is. We don't know what the cost it was for him. But what we do know is he faithfully supports her. He's there at the palace gates every day waiting to hear if she'll be queen. And then afterwards, when she becomes queen, he's still there when the decree is issued. He reports the plot to Xerxes about the two guys that are going to try and kill him, even though he doesn't know what the consequences will be. And when he gives advice to Esther, he never seems to change. Whether he's in sackcloth and ashes, whether he's in speaking to the king, whether he's on a horse being taken through all the streets. You remember that bit in the story where somebody's taking him around the streets and going, this is what God does for the people. Uh, this is what the king does for the people who honor him. He's going through the streets or he's sitting at the gate in sackcloth. He's a man of God, whatever his circumstances. And he seems to have his head screwed on. Because he knows how to pray and fast and put God first, but he also knows how to speak boldly and powerfully to those in authority. So men of God, now is a time to stand up and be counted. And whatever your role is in your family, in the church, in your workplace, in society, this is the time to be humble and to be bold. So let's think a little bit about timing. So God's timing in this is quite staggering. And as we've already heard from Katie this morning and was echoed by Jody, 
there's this classic verse in Esther that says, it may just be that God has put you where you are now for such a time as this. So we see in this story the perfect timing of God. There's nothing to suggest that God approves of Xerxes, of impaling, of murder, of harems, or even like a worldwide kind of beauty search for a queen. But what we do know is the name of God, although it's not mentioned, is all over this book. The character of God, the faith in God, is everywhere. And what we see is that through people, God saves the Jewish nation again. And in many ways, this is another example of God at unexpected points bringing salvation, intervening through the obedience of his people, sometimes directly, even when everything seems utterly stacked up against them. Mordecai, Esther, the Jews in Susa, in the whole of these 127 regions, thought they were absolutely scuppered. They thought on that day that was nine months away when it was issued, they were living thinking, it's going to go wrong, we're dreading this day coming, we've got no escape, we're going to be annihilated. And yet God, in his timing, finds a way, just like he did with Noah and the ark, with Abraham and his son, like he did with Moses and the Red Sea, and like he did with a child born of a virgin in Bethlehem. God looks for obedient people who are not needing to be superstars. They might have, as Drew was saying, just a couple of coins. They might have very little to give. What can I give him? Poor as I am, if I was a rich man, I'd bring something great, but I haven't got anything. I will give him myself. God is always looking for hearts that say, I'm yours. Here I am. Send me. Send me. So let's seek to understand what God is doing, his timing, and let's trust in him. That even when everything seems completely, absolutely impossible, he is the God of the impossible. We also said that this is a, an example of faithful people living in a complex pagan world. This is a world that's got many religions and where the king expects to be treated as a god. There's immorality everywhere. We can see that Mordecai and Esther live faithfully just like Joseph and Daniel did when they were taken into captivity. They are not strutting with their faith, but they are calmly and humbly saying, this is our faith. We're called now to live in that kind of culture. We are in a complex pagan culture. And we have to retain our faith even though there are so many different voices and so many different things and so much immorality around us. And one of the things that struck me this morning was the story where Abraham and Lot have to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. And in that story in Genesis... Um, essentially God says he is going to destroy these two pagan cultures. And Lot and his family and Abraham and his family go. They don't quite go as far as God was originally saying, but they go out, they leave it, and Lot's wife turns round. 
and she's turned into a pillar of salt. And it just struck me as I was standing there, it's very, very tempting and very easy to just look back at the pagan culture, to look back at what we were before we're Christian, to just see the things that seem sometimes to be shinier or nicer or brighter or easier from our past when we weren't Christians, because sometimes it is hard to be Christians. But what God is asking of us is undivided devotion, a heart that says, I'm yours, God, I choose you, I choose what you have for me, I don't want to turn around and look back, I don't want to be split in my thinking, I want to be single-heartedly devoted to you. And so, from our point of view, that kind of leads a little bit more to God and his timing. And what I want to just focus on here with God and his timing is just thinking about how his timing is always perfect. And so, for me, it always comes back to this concept that time is a construct, Time is not something that really, really exists. We choose our clocks, we choose our calendars, we choose our days of the week. They're made up. They're not like some entity that exists. God controls time. People choose names for bits of time, but God controls time. And so God has the ability to make sure that he gets the right things done in the right time, and that we can do the right things in the right time. And this can sometimes be just for one instant that God chooses to place us in the right place at the right time, or sometimes it can be that God actually, for an extended period, is doing something new and we can just move along with him. And what we seem to be feeling at the moment in society is with all the shaking and all the change, God is doing an extended thing which will be a new thing. And as Drew said and as Katie said and we felt this morning, this is the time for us to think about whether God has put us somewhere special to do something significant. And I don't think that God always directs us every second of every day to say, right, Lynn, now you need to go there. Shall I go to the bathroom or shall I go downstairs? Okay, I'll go downstairs. Right, shall I go from downstairs along the road? Shall I go to work today? I'm not sure that God does that. Might be wrong. Might be that Lynn and Drew say. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he does tell us where to go. But that's not the usual thing. Most of us are living in a sense that we've got to have a relationship with God where we say, help us to be in the right place. Help us to speak to the right people. Help us to speak up when we need to. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. But he chooses to use us and he loves it when he can use us. So let's think about God's timing. Let's also think a little bit more about this whole idea about compromising. I'm always struck that at the moment, and in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, God is calling this no-compromise mentality. We said it a little bit earlier, and I think it's worth saying it again. God is really concerned with us acting against injustice, against immorality, and triumphing the cause of the oppressed and the marginalised. And 
we're not saved so that we can be comfortable. We're not saved so that we can be rich. We're not saved so that we can always be right. We're not Christians so that we can have the right theology. We're not Christians so that we can have the right arguments. We're called to be Christians so that we can be redeemed and so that we can redeem. So that we can make people worth something. And as Katie was saying with Julie a bit earlier, you've got to know that you're worth something. You've got to know that you're worth something. I'd like to say you've got to know that you're worth something before you can go out and make a difference, but I'm not always sure that's the case. I think sometimes it's in going out and helping others find their worth that we find our worth ourselves. So God never calls us to be perfect. He never calls us to be perfect. What he calls us to do is to go out there and try and bring hope and redemption. And the word redemption is an interesting word because redeemed is about being worth something. We say, I deem that a good thing to do. I say it's worth something. And so throughout the Bible, from the start in Genesis all the way through, there are examples of God saying, you are worth something. The fact in the, in the first chapters of Genesis that he says we're made in his image means he's loaning his image to us. You don't give your image to somebody unless you are giving something of yourself to them. So God took one heck of a risk when he made man and woman in his image. Because what he is doing is he's saying, I put my stamp on that. Those people, I want them to be like me. I want them to operate like me. And so we've got to be really careful in the West. Very few of us are scared about where our next meal's coming from. Even if we are scared, we know there are food banks out there. We know that we've got friends. We know that we can ring people up and get a Saturday night meal. But, okay, it's all right. See, people just throw teas and coffees at you. There's food and drink everywhere. It's absolutely fun. So, what we aren't facing is that kind of luxury and that kind of comfort that we should just sit back in and enjoy. What we've got to do is make the conscious effort to go out there and make a difference to the people around us. And the last thing, I suppose, I want to just pick on two things really quickly before we finish. The first thing is about remembering. When we spoke last week, one of the things we said was we need to remember the good things that God has done from the past. Now, I think there's two ways we can remember things from the past. We can remember what God has done in the Bible. That's why we read the Bible. We remind ourselves that when things feel uncomfortable or uncertain, he acts in certain ways in the Bible. Those things are good. We can take some of those things and we can apply them to ourselves. We know he loves us. We know he's got plans for us. The other thing that sometimes feels better is we remember the words that God's spoken over us, the things that we felt as we were reading, 
Some of us, we know, are writing things down. We've seen two examples, three examples of that this morning. People who are writing stuff down so that they can remember it. And I try and do this in several ways. So one of the ways I remember things is on my emails, I've got an enjoy folder. So if I get something that's good that's sent to me, I put it into enjoy. It's not as full as I'd like. But every now and again, when I have one of those days, I can go to the enjoy. Also, in my Bible, weirdly, everything, everything that goes through church, I kind of check it, it's in my Bible, and then I'll put it in a little folder. And then in my loft, each of our family, we've got a memory box. And in that memory box, it's a nice big plastic box. Mine's got a little bit bigger now. In that memory box are things I want to remember. Things like when I was at university and I was in a play. Things like when Phil did a talk on a New Year's once, he came up with six things to help us with our well-being. It was really good. I've kept it. Things like once when Drew was in a ser sermon, he drew me a picture. I've got a picture that he drew in a sermon in a box. I've got words that people have given to me that I've written down. I've got all of my diaries for the last 20 odd years so that I remember where I was. And I consciously, every holiday, go back and read those things. That's what Xerxes was doing when he was really bored that night. He got all the past things. You do it with photos. Oh, do you remember that? We keep photos. We've probably got them in the cloud now. But remembering what God has said to you and done for you is something. I was out for a meal on Thursday with someone, and we said, do you remember that word that somebody had for us back in? And we couldn't remember. And the person I was with said, we were in this place. I was like, I don't even remember that place. And then we started visualizing it and saying, what did that mean? What did that thing mean? It's a good thing to try and remember what God has said, because what God has said will come to pass. So what has God said about you already? What did he say through Drew or Katie or Rich or people you pray with? What did he say to you when you were reading the Bible? What has he said, he said is your gift? Adam needs to remember today because it so easily goes from your mind when you go back out and you're back at um, college and you're doing all these different things. We need to remember the things that God has said about us and then go, okay, God, how do we get those things into our lives? And finally, I want to say a little bit about elders. Um, I think Esther would just have been a poor orphan girl if Mordecai hadn't taken her under his wing and made a difference. And she listened to him. And I can't but think it must have been really easy for her, this beautiful girl, a year spent away from him in the palace. Everybody loves her. Everybody thinks she's awesome. She's got whatever she wants. And then he's at the gate in sackcloth and ashes saying, you've got to go to the king and you've got to basically tell him to stop this decree. Now, she must have really trusted Mordecai to do that. That was one heck of a thing to have to do. And there are things that my old and wise advisors tell me that I sometimes go, I don't really want to do that. I'm not sure you're right. And the way I view it is, I'm only actually listening to those older and wiser than me and obeying them when I don't want to do it. So this is my challenge. Have you got older, wiser people in your lives however old you are, can get harder, I imagine. Have you got 
older, wiser people in your lives who are advising you, supporting you, and who you say to, I need to create the environment where you can challenge me. So at work, um, both the people who are my direct reports are 10 years older than me. And they give me advice. And I'm consciously thinking to myself, how do I make sure that I hear what they are saying to me? Because it's easy, very easy, to not listen. Strangely for me, it's very easy to talk a lot. But what I'm trying to do is listen to what they're saying, to try and hear about their experiences, to think about what they've learned, and to say, am I getting this right? So all of us need those people. Now, of course, they don't need to be older, because as we know, some people are wise beyond their years. But we all need people, not just one person, people who we can go to and say, am I getting this right? Help me with this. Help me sort this out. And we're not going to honour those who are older and have gone before us always by putting them on horses and then going in front of them through London. But sometimes we're good as a church, recognising things like Lynn and Mike who set up the church. Sometimes we're not so good at giving a place and just saying, come and bring what you've got. What have you got? What's God saying to you? We need to make sure as a church and as individuals, we have got people who are giving us wise advice and that when they do, we listen. So as always, there's a lot in all of this. That is Esther in two weeks. So there's a number of things we can learn from it, and I really recommend you go away and read it again. But we'll be on to our next one after the celebration next week. And we're looking at Daniel. And Jodie's going to be talking to us for ja Daniel. And there'll be links, but I'm going to say no more. There'll be links. I think the thing for us today is to think about that clear message from Esther is what if we're called to the place that we're in for such a time as this. Our church says we want to be the right people in the right place at the right time, doing the right things in the right way. What are those things for you? What's the place that God's put you in? What new places might he be inviting you to go into?